0: All right. I'd like to invite our children to uh, meet our children's workers there in the back so they can have a great uh, morning at Transformation Station. And uh, let me just say, as uh, John mentioned in our welcome, uh We are really thankful that you're here this morning. If you're new with us, we're especially glad that you're here. Uh, We're a church for our community, and we love to see our church grow and and just reach out to new uh, people throughout uh, the Medford area. So my name is Tanner Turley. I serve as a lead pastor here at Redemption Hill, and uh, it's our privilege to to lead this church and to serve this church uh, as as God gives us strength. So uh, this morning, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Revelation 5. As John shared, we're going to start a three-week series. It's going to be bang, bang, bang on the idea of... Of worship and how that God has created us to live our lives in worship back to Him in light of His immense worth. And so, as you turn to Revelation 5, I want to just throw out a thought to you this morning that I think will get us going on this idea of worship, and that is this that we are a people of pursuit. Okay, so from the overarching trajectory of our life down to the very minute, detailed decisions that we make on any given day, we are constantly making decisions based on what we want to pursue. Okay? It doesn't matter if it's the clothes we wear. It doesn't matter if it's how we spend our leisure time all the way to the decisions we make on maybe a career path or even the spouse that we want to spend the rest of our lives with. We make value decisions that influence how we pursue that which we desire. So let me kind of explain it like this. Our life is one big pursuit. And we pursue that which we believe will deliver joy, satisfaction, and contentment in life. Do you see this happening in your own life? I mean, businesses and companies understand this, right? That's why they spend millions of dollars advertising products that they are promising you will deliver on some of the desires that you have in life, right? So if you will... Buy this certain kind of drink it will cause you to have more friends and maybe become the most interesting man in the world. If you will wear a certain kind of clothes you, you, your new sense of style will, will elevate your importance and, and cause you to be distinct from those around you. What about investment companies. Man, if you'll just invest on our path, this green arrow that's going to take you to seven-digit security, and it's going to make your life so much better in the end, right? They're all all making promises to us. And so they're they're holding up values that that we desire and treasure and want us to chase after and pursue. I want to share with you this morning that God actually made us in such a way that we would have desires and pursue those desires to fulfill these longings of our heart what will we believe will deliver ultimate value and this is what dave harvey says in his book rescuing ambition is so good listen to what he says he says we consciously pursue what we value It's not simply a matter of being driven by biology or genetics or environmental conditioning to satisfy instinctive cravings. Rather, we perceive something, prize it at a certain value, then pursue it according to that assigned value because we were created that way. This is the essence of ambition. Did you get that? We perceive something and we assign a value to it. We prize it at a certain value. And whatever it is that we prize the most, that is what we are going to pursue. Now listen, God created us this way. The Bible tells us ultimately that God created us to know him and to perceive his infinite worth and to prize it and to go after it. But here's our problem our perception is really, really oftentimes skewed, right? So that we do not perceive things so clearly and we don't prize what we ought to prize as ultimate in our life. And this has been the way it's been since sin entered the world and the fall of Adam and Eve took place in our world. But listen, even though people do not prize God as they ought and pursue God like we should. The message of Revelation is this, that Jesus will get his due, all right? He will receive the worship that he so richly deserves. He will receive it either now or then. And the encouragement for us today is to get on board with the way that God created us to, to not just value all these peripheral things in life, but to value Him as ultimate, as ultimately satisfying in our lives. And that's what Revelation 5 is going to teach us. So uh, hopefully you're there. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, that'll be on page 100, uh, 1030, all right, 1030 there in your Bibles. And what Revelation 5 is going to teach us is that the matchless worth of Christ summons our unrestrained worship. You got that? The matchless worth of Christ summons our unrestrained worship. We can even simplify it more than that and just say that His worth drives our worship. His worth is what should compel us, should motivate us to worship Him in return to how worthy and glorious and great that He is. And so before we read this this passage, let me just catch you up to speed here. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. You probably knew that. And what we have here is John, one of Jesus' most beloved disciples, having this vision of, of how it's all going to turn out. And God lets him in on what what heaven looks like. And and he gives him this vision so that John can turn around and write this book to encourage Christians in his day. Because at the end of the first century, man, Christians were under persecution and they needed an encouraging word. And that's exactly what we find here in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. I mean, it it is a picture of God on his throne receiving worship. And one of the things that I love about Revelation, I hope this will be one of the the effects of what happens here this morning, is that Revelation helps us look beyond the here and now and gets us looking at the there and then. I mean, we are so busy, right? Our calendars are packed. And so it's, it's difficult for us to even look past today, much less tomorrow or the end of the week or the end of, I mean, if you're really, you know, big picture, you're like the end of the year, right? But how about the end of your life? How about not just this life, but the next? That's what Revelation helps us to see. And so, listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you would consider yourself a Christian, I mean, I hope that this picture of worship that we see in Revelation 5 would revolutionize the way that we worship on a daily basis. But perhaps you may not consider yourself a Christian here this morning and, and you're just kind of exploring this whole Jesus still and, and maybe what Revelation 5 will do is just cause you to pause and consider what it will be like when you one day will stand before God and give an account for your life hopefully the effect for all of us is that, man, we will be moved to not only know and perceive how infinitely glorious and worthy God is, but that we will prize Him as such and we will pursue Him with our lives. So the first encouragement that I wanna give you from these early verses in our passage in Revelation 5 is this, that we should recognize the supreme worth of Christ as the lion and the lamb, all right? Check verse 1 with me of Revelation 5. Chapter 5, this is what John writes. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, the question becomes in verse 1 Hey, who is on the throne? That's the first question. And then, number 2, what's up with this scroll? All right, now the first question is much easier to answer because Micah read for us as we were singing songs of worship, all we need to do is go back to chapter uh, four and verse 11 and it says that this one who is seated on the throne is worthy, he is the Lord and God, God the Father. And he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. He is the creator and the one whose will causes all things to, to exist and to be sustained. So, this is God, a picture of God on his throne. But what about this scroll? Well, we would have to continue reading in Revelation, but I agree with scholars that say this scroll contained God's plan for all of human history, his great plan of redemption that is fulfilled and being fulfilled. And it's what we see that is unfolded all throughout the rest of the book. Of Revelation. Now, verse 2, it says that there was a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So there is a challenge here. Someone needs to be able to take this scroll and to open it up. And the challenge is going forth and the drama builds in verses three and four because what does it say? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. You see, the key to this challenge here is who is worthy? Is there anyone worthy? Is there anyone worthy in heaven? What about these four living creatures? What about these 24 elders? Are they worthy? How about some of the great saints? On earth, in heaven, is there, Moses, Elijah, you know, anyone here? Can can anyone get the job done? And there is no one that can step up to the plate and grab the scroll because no one was worthy. And John begins to weep. Because it seems that all is lost. Man, how is this plan of redemption going to be fulfilled if there is no one worthy to complete it and get the job done? And then we see verse 5. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Hope has risen in verse five. And what we have here are two messianic titles for Jesus found. From Genesis 49, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah, and Isaiah 11, the Root of David, they are both titles that point to how He is the Messiah, Savior of the world, and the one who will ultimately conquer all things. And so really what you have, Revelation 5 is one of the the best passages to study the person and work of Christ. I'd say it's easily top five in the Bible passages that really unpack his person and his work. So we're going to get a lesson in Christology here this morning, studying the person and work of Christ. And we're going to see two major ways and reasons why he is so worthy to open the scroll and complete this plan of God. Number one, as the lion, Christ's worth is seen in his triumphant reign. Okay, so Jesus here pictured in the book of Revelation is a conquering Christ. Does does this seem strange to you? I mean, is this the Jesus that you grew up with? You know, my parents didn't buy me a Precious Moments Bible, but have you ever seen a Precious Moments Bible, anyone? They have little illustrations for children, and you know how Jesus is always pictured in those Bibles? He's sitting on a rock, holding a lamb, rosy cheeks, has children all around him, and he is just the kindest, most gentlest, you know, person in the world. Now, is Jesus kind? Is Jesus compassionate? Is Jesus more loving than we can imagine Does Jesus take care of the weak? Is he a shepherd? Does he care for children? Absolutely. All those things are true. But listen, sometimes we get in our minds that Jesus is like this, you know, weak character, emptied of power. And what we find in the book of Revelation is that Jesus is a warrior. Look with me in Revelation chapter 17. Just take your thumb, stick it right there in five. Let's flip over to Revelation 17. And what does it say in verse 14? You ready for this? They will make war on the lamb. That's Jesus. And the lamb will conquer them. Why? For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Now, chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe, I love this, just in case you didn't know, now you know. Jesus has written on his robe and tattooed on his thigh the name. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a picture of a God who triumphs over all of his enemies. And maybe that doesn't rest well with you this morning. I mean, you know, we're a pretty peaceful society. We're oftentimes kind of anti that which seems to be violent, right? But listen. God certainly has enemies that have raised their arms against him. These enemies are sin, Satan, and death. And what Jesus does through his sinless life and his cruel death and his glorious resurrection is that he puts his foot on the neck of sin, Satan, and death. And this is good news for us. Man, we need a warrior Christ that can get the job done and deal with the greatest enemies in our lives. It's kind of like this. What does this mean for us? What, what, how does Christ as warrior relate to us? Well, it's kind of like my experience in college, all right? I played basketball at Kentucky Wesleyan College, all right? We were the Panthers, all right? 31-3 my sophomore year, national champions of Division II basketball, all right? You didn't know that about me, but that's a fact, okay? Uh, so I got the ring to prove it. It's in Kentucky. My parents, you know, like have it tucked away there. But, you know, seven diamonds in the form of a one, right? Right there on this thick ring. Looks like, you know, Super Bowl ring. It's crazy. And, uh, and so here, here's the deal, though, all right? See, what was my role on the team, okay? I was not an All-American. I wish I could tell you I was. I played behind the quickest guy I've ever seen, Anwar Perry, and Larico Duncan, who was an All-American, and one of the greatest shooters, Gino Bartolone, in our conference. And so, needless to say, my freshman and sophomore year, man, I was not getting much playing time. In fact, here was my role. Sit on the bench. Good job, guys. Wave my towel man run out to the huddle give them all five man good job way to go man, if if my number ever got called which was like when we were up 30 points then I got to go in and kind of do my thing and help contribute to the the win right but but what's the moral of the story you know i didn't do much to help us win the national championship but i still got the ring you know what i'm saying still got the ring i was part of the victory and what happens in the gospel is that the gospel is so much richer and deeper than that. Man, I didn't contribute just a little bit to the gospel. Man, I contributed nothing to the gospel. Jesus did the work. He lived a life that I could never live. Perfect, sinless, in our place. Died in my place, your place. So that by virtue of his victory, man, I get to wear the ring. I hope that's good news to you this morning. And you want to know the paradox of the gospel? How is it that Christ conquers? He conquers by his death. And this is what we see in verses 6 and following. Look in verse 6, Revelation 5, 6. It says, in between the throne and the four living creatures. All right, we've just heard about this lion, right? The lion tribe of Jews. And among the elders I saw, not a a lion, not, not a lion, he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is the paradox of the gospel. The triumphant, conquering lion triumphs through his death as the lamb of God. John one twenty nine, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming to him to be baptized, what does John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So how does Jesus deal with our sin? How does he triumph over sin and death and Satan? He does so through the sacrifice of his life on a bloody, cruel Roman cross. He was the perfect lamb who was slain for us. In the Old Testament, you know that the people of Israel always had to sacrifice a perfect, spotless lamb, right? as an acceptable gift to God that, that their sins might be atoned for temporarily. But every single time, those hundreds and thousands of times that lambs were sacrificed, they were always pointing forward to the pure, spotless lamb of God that would deal with our sin completely forever. And so what did Jesus Christ accomplish on the cross? Here's just a little quick theology from Romans 5. I mean, Revelation 5, that's where we are. Revelation 5, a little theology of the cross that we can take away from these verses. Number one, Christ died to ransom people for God. Okay? Jesus died to ransom people for God. This was the ultimate purpose of his death. You see, here's the deal, okay? We don't just have some kind of small issues that need to be resolved with God, okay? It's not that, you know, our relationship with God was simply in bad shape. Our relationship because of our sin and because God is so holy, it was completely broken into. The Bible says we are enemies of God, said that we live for ourselves. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, deserving nothing but judgment and condemnation. And yet, God, being so rich in mercy and love, would extend forgiveness to us who were unworthy of His love and grace that we might have life through Christ. And don't miss this, okay? A lot of people want you know, Christianity and Jesus as kind of a coping mechanism, as kind of this therapeutic solution to their problems, their immediate problems in their life. As if, man, I'll go to church for a few weeks and get this all ironed out and then I'm going to disappear for a while because, man, God has kind of fixed my deal and he's got me on this new path for a season. And, and, and we come to God Asking what he can kind of do for us in the temporary solutions of our life. But listen, man, Jesus died so that we might have our deepest need, not these surface tertiary, not so important in the scheme of eternity needs met, but our deepest need met, and that we can be reconciled to God. What makes heaven heaven? It's not just that, man. There is no more sin there. There will be, you know, reconciled with, with, with our, our relatives who have gone before us in Christ. What makes heaven heaven is that we are brought back to God. That we can have a relationship with the God who created us and loved us again. That's the essence of the gospel. And that's the most important part of the theology of the cross. Now, number two, this is really good. Christ died for all people. Look, skip down to to verses 9 and 10. This is so good. Now that they see this lamb who was slain, they sing a new song to him, and they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, there it was, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And what does this teach us? It teaches us that the gospel is for all people. The cross, Jesus died for all people. That's why Redemption Hill will never be a white church or a black church. We will never be a rich church or a poor church. We will never be, you know, uh, an educated church or a not so educated church. Man, we're just a church. We're a church filled with people for whom Christ died. And that's why we say, man, we're a thumbprint. We want to be a thumbprint of our community. We want all people to come and hear this good news that can change their life. And added to that, uh, this is is the impetus for mission. This is why we care not just about Medford. Man, we care about the, the, the globe. And so we pray for the nations every single Sunday. We want to send people to the nations to take the same gospel that we talk about here and take it to the world. Because everyone needs this truth. And so Christ died to ransom people for God. He died for all people. And then finally, Christ died to provide great benefits for his people. Look, it says that he made them a kingdom. You see that at the end of verse 10? You have made them a kingdom. And what does that mean? It means that we are now in the kingdom of God. God is king, and and he invites us to know him and to live under his reign. We are citizens. Listen, man, we we may live in Massachusetts, but for the Christian, this this state is not my ultimate home. It's my temporary home. My my citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven. That's that's really where he's living for. that's, That's what he's most concerned about. So we we belong to the kingdom of God now. And it even says that he has made us priests to our God. I mean, the Bible says if you're in Christ, man, you're a priest. And what does that mean? That kind of sounds shocking, right? But it just means that we have direct access to God. We need to go through no other person because we come to him through this lamb who was slain. We have immediate access because of what Jesus has done through the cross. That is the good news of the gospel. And so we need to recognize the supreme worth of Christ as the lion and the lamb. But now what happens when we recognize? What happens when we talk about we perceive how glorious and how worthy Jesus is? Well, hopefully now it will change the way we prize him and esteem him as most valuable, and then we will pursue him which is our second and final point this morning. Respond to the supremacy of Christ with unrestrained worship. Respond to the supremacy of Christ with unrestrained worship. This passage here in verses 8 through 14 reveals an intense response to the worth of Christ. It is a picture of what the essence of worship should be about As God reveals Himself to us and we get a clear picture of who He is, it should elicit and compel a response from within us. So as we see Him as worthy, we respond accordingly. And listen, this is why we were made. All throughout Scripture, we see we're made in the image of God. We're made to reflect Him, to know Him, to worship Him. Isaiah 43, bring my sons and daughters in from afar, whom I created, why? For my glory. When it speaks of Jesus in Colossians 1, it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth and other, under the earth. All things were created by him and for him. We were made for God. We were made to worship him with our lives. And so if you're questioning, man, why you are here on this earth, I mean, It's a a beautiful life that we get to live. There are all kinds of pursuits that we can go after and there are many good pursuits in life. But what the Bible says is our ultimate pursuit, our ultimate allegiance should be given to God. And so what do we learn from these verses about how the worth of Christ should drive our worship? I want to give you four principles, okay? The the first one is this. (coughs) His worth changes our posture, okay? His worth changes our posture. Look back in verse 8. What does it say? It says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. So so in light of the worth of, of Christ, they had to humble themselves, right? They bow before him. Man, this is God. Which, by the way, the picture that we have in Revelation 5, make no mistake about it, they are worshiping Jesus as God. Contrary to a new friend that I made in the community a couple, in the past couple of weeks who's a Jehovah's Witness, I mean, we were just having a conversation about Jesus and she said, you know what, I think he's a great person, but I can't accept that he's God. And I just said, you know what, I certainly respectfully disagree with you, and I'd love to study the Bible with you and see what it has to say about him and see what he said about himself and how people responded to him. Because this is they are worshiping him as God and they fall before him in humility. And so a, a little secret for us, again, is that I mean, we can either bow now or bow later, but the Bible says that we will all bow before Christ one day. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11 say... Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus in light of his his obedient death, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, I will never forget as a 12-year-old sitting in the balcony of my church, all right, in Henderson, Kentucky, that's where I grew up. I can remember my pastor probably preaching on a passage, something similar to this. And he said, you know what? One day, every knee will bow. And he says, you know, President Clinton, his knee will bow. And, you know, Governor, whoever it was, Governor so-and-so, their knee will bow. And Michael Jordan, their knee will bow. And Snoop Doggy Dog, you know who that is? His knee will bow. And I was, you know, was kind of stunned. But, but he made the point, right? He made the point that there's there's not one person on the planet who will not one day stand before God and bow their knee before God because God is king. He's the greatest of all, and he deserves our worship. So his worth changes our posture. His worth changes our priorities. When God gets a hold of our life like this, everything else becomes Secondary. When we're talking about ultimate worship, listen. We're saying that that Christ has our ultimate allegiance and affection. You remember we studied the book of Ecclesiastes, right? And we saw how he was ch- chasing after meaning and satisfaction in life, and so he tried to find it in all of these earthly things: power, prestige, money, pleasure, relationships, sex. You name it. You fill in the blank. Experiences, work, wealth. No matter what it was, he kept coming up empty-handed. He said, man, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. Why is that? Because we were not made for the created things. We were made for the creator. And when we see Christ as ultimately worthy, man, that's when all these other things start to make sense and come together. All right, so it's not that, it's not that a job is bad, Okay. Don't, you know, go to your boss this week and say, you know, pastor said I shouldn't pursue work and wealth. Man, I'm, I'm out of here. Okay, that would kind of be a bad move, okay? It's, it's not that, 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 that relationships are bad, that these pursuits on this earth are bad, but they're, they're bad when they become wrongly ordered, right? So we pursue God above all else, and then we let these other pursuits come under that ultimate pursuit. Because God does care about all of those things. Number three, his worth not only changes our posture and our priorities, but it changes our passions. We see that, that these, these angelic beings before the throne, they have harps. This, this worship is expressive to God. And I love, look, look in verse 12. It says that they said, said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and blessing, and glory. I mean, it's like they can't stack enough terms to articulate how great Jesus is and how great God is. And so they just try to stack as many terms as possible to express, man, how great and how worthy Jesus is of our worship. In other words, look, they were going hard after God, they were unrestrained. They were not holding back in their worship of who God is. And let me, just, let me just pause and ask you, is that the way that you live your life? I mean, is God really that worthy? Is, is He worthy of, of, of your best thoughts, your, your, your highest affection, your, your, your chief allegiance? Is, is God worth it? If so, then, then what does that do? What does that do to your calendar? What does that do to, to how you think about your job and how you interact with your family through the week and, 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 and how you, you know, respond when things don't go your way? It changes everything. When we see God as ultimately worthy and glorious. And I love what Thomas Watson said, okay? He was a pastor in the 17th century, probably never read any of his writings, but he has this five-word sentence in one of the middle of of one of his books that just stopped me in my tracks and kind of flipped my whole night upside down. He said, glory renders us intensely zealous. I mean, just write that down, okay? Put that one in your iPhone, save it, don't forget it. He says, glory renders us intensely zealous. What does that mean? He's saying that when we see ultimate glory, something that's worth pursuing above everything else in life, man, we will pursue it with the greatest intensity. I hope you found Christ to be worth more than anything, where he, he changes everything now, now the decisions that you make and how you schedule your day and, and how you interact with human, it's all filtered through who Jesus is, because He is ultimately glorious and worth all of my worship. So His worth changes our posture, our priorities, our passions, and then finally, His worth changes our praise. Did anybody watch the Olympics? I mean, there were some great examples of of success and victory and even humility in victory. But there were some other examples of those who wanted to say, hey, look at me. I am the man. I am the woman. I am a legend. Did Did anyone see Usain Bolt? I mean, th- this guy was phenomenal. I, mean, I love watching this man run—the fastest man in the world ever clocked in the 100 meters or 200 meters. I mean, he is a phenomenal athlete. But what he wanted to do after he r- dra- wrapped those gold medals around his neck was to talk about his own greatness. I am a legend, right? Did you hear him say this? Man, I, I am a legend. Now everyone knows. I, I got beat in the trials, but now everyone knows I am the legend. And fuck. He didn't have to tell anybody that, right? I mean, we already knew that. <laughs> but he wanted to give praise to himself. Man, and this is our bent, right? We want to be recognized. We want to be praised. But what the Bible teaches us to do is to, to live our life in such a way that, I man, any praise that we receive, any encouragement, any, I mean, we just turn around and give it back to God. Because God is the one who gave us legs to run. He's the one that gives us lungs that can breathe. He gives us the mind to think and to excel in our craft. And that's why I love Romans eleven thirty six. one of my favorite verses in the Bibles. For from him, this is like a theology for all of life. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything we have in life is a gift from God. It's from Him. It comes through Him, and it should return back to Him in praise. And so when we catch this vision, when we perceive the worth of of Christ, of God, rightly, then we should prize it accordingly, and we should pursue Him with everything that we are. Revelation 5 teaches us that there should be no doubt that God loves us. He sent his son to die in our place that we might have life in him. So the question is not, does God love me? Does God love you? Does God love us? The question is, do we love him in return? How much do you love him? Can people see that in your life? Dave Harvey once again says this, the depth of my love is seen in the intensity of my pursuit. The depth of my love is seen in the intensity of my pursuit. And here's my prayer for us this morning, that individually and collectively, we would be a church, we would become a church that's so wrapped up with the glory of Christ and the infinite worth that God has in himself and that we would just go hard after him and pursue him because that is what's going to change our lives and that's what's going to change this whole city through us because of this radical transformation that the gospel brings. And so may we increase. May our prayer be, God, show me who you are, that I might live for you more, that I might love you more, and that my pursuit of you and worship of you would be intense to bring you glory with my life. Let's pray. God, if we're being honest, we, we are so easily distracted, and our worship you have, is, is often so restrained. And so, God, we just ask that your Spirit would, would show us who you are and how worthy you are, and, and, and Lord, that you, would, that you would change us from the inside out that we would become more wholehearted worshipers of you, that we would live our lives in such a way that we are showing, man, we are not great, but God is great. And he's given us a new purpose and vision and and, and mission for life. And so God, would you change us that we might bring honor and blessing and worship to you and that, that you would then use us in the process to be a blessing to others. God, help us now. Worship you not only with our lips and singing this song, but but as we go from this place this week, God change us and help us to respond to your infinite worth. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. So we're going to stand and sing a song. It's called "He Is the Lord." And if you just maybe you just need to kind of chill out and just kind of reflect on what we've heard this morning. If you if that's you, feel free. As others stand, you can you can remain seated. Just kind of soak in what you've heard and. And listen, if you're anything like me, you blow it often, right? And you just maybe need to confess that to God right now and say, you know what, God, I know that you're Lord and you're King and you're worthy of all my worship, but I have so much that gets in my way. I need you to forgive me for that and change me. So if you need to do that, even as you stand and sing, man, God hears our prayers. He changes us. He wants us to be close, tight with Him. So I want to invite you to stand, sing. Let's give glory and praise to God.